If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I like being on the microphone, though. Like, I really, there's something that hits me if I'm doing a podcast or doing a radio show and I'm talking. Like, I like that. And it's not because of the attention as much as I really just enjoy the act of putting those ideas together and figuring out how to present it largely extemporaneously. But like, I really, I, I dig doing that part. TV boy, it's interesting though. It's a drug. Like you watch how people respond to that drug and it, it can, it can get people. Like I've realized pretty quickly off the TV, like, Hey, you kind of got to dabble in this. You got to, you know, you need to be, you can't, you can't just slam this. You'd be messed up for the rest of your life. <laughs> Hi, my name is Bobani Jones, and I host The Right Time with Bobani Jones on Wave Sports and Entertainment. And listen to Brian forget how to say my name. Hello, everybody, and we're back on another beautiful Tuesday with another beautiful episode, if I do say so myself, of Off the Beat. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Now, as you heard, my guest today is Bomani Jones. Now, I want it on record that I do know how to say his name. Bomani, Bomani, Bomani. Now, I'm going to be honest with all of you here. As I was with Bomani shortly after this misstep, uh, exactly 12 minutes after this recording, I tested positive for COVID. Yes, I suspected that I might have it, and indeed I did. So, you know, COVID brain and the whole sentence came out wrong and and I said Bomami and he came right for me. I deserve it. You know what, Bomani? In exchange, I'm gonna give you a privilege that I've never ever extended to anyone else. You can call me Ryan or Kevin, your choice. Uh I'm feeling fine now, by the way, just a little clouded brain, but I so enjoyed this conversation. Bomani is one of the smartest, most interesting voices out there today in sports journalism, or really anywhere. He's a fascinating guy when discussing really any topic. In fact, 
The secret to his success is he can connect with people about a lot of different things. He can make a thoughtful and deep argument on any topic. He just happens to get paid to do it about sports. He is or has been a music and culture writer, a radio host, a television personality, a podcaster, and an economist, though not necessarily in that order. Most recently, you can find him three days a week giving nuanced insight and context to the sports world and many other topics on his newly rebooted podcast, The Right Side. He also hosts The Evening Jones, which has been going strong since the year 2011. It's incredible. If that podcast were a person, it would be in middle school by now. And that, that's pretty crazy. He is so interested. His story is interesting. His family is interesting. Talking to him was so much fun. So here is a man that could never have COVID brain, even if he tried, Bomani Jones. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. What's up, Bamani? Hey, man, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing all right. Good to be on with you. Well, thank you so much for for joining me. I know it's a very busy day in the world of sports. Always something happening. Yeah. But I tell you this, I, I can't pass up the rare opportunity to meet a white person from actual Atlanta. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> well, first off, thank you. That's it's very humbling to to hear. <laughs> yeah, I heard you were uh, you were born there, but w- when did you move to Houston? So we moved to Houston when I was seven, but I went to Clark Atlanta for yep. undergrad, and my parents have been back in Atlanta since '97. So okay. I kind of got like a dual citizenship going <laughs> with Atlanta. I mean, I've spent definitely more time in the last 25 years in Houston than I have in Atlanta. Right. What was the reason for the move to Houston? Uh, my parents got different gigs. Like they were professors, so they were working at uh, what was then Clark College at the time, and then we're working at a school called Prairie View A and M. And then my dad got a job back at CAU, and so went back there. So like my brother and sister grew up in Atlanta. Like they're okay. ten years older than me, so that's all they knew really growing up. Your parents, I understand, were well. You just said they were teaching in college. They were intellectuals. A political yeah. scientist and an an economist, an economist. <laughs> was education <laughs> important to you growing up in your home? Were you having intellectual conversations over dinner? Yeah, I would probably say it's fair to say that there were intellectual conversations over dinner, though I don't think I realized that's what they were, because they okay. were just kind of the conversations over dinner. Like the thing about my parents. I always tell people that like when you tell people that your parents are professors, like they imagine that you were living like the Huxables on the Cosby show and they're like jazz intermissions for dinner and stuff like that. But we're 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 way more, I'd say, I guess, regular than that. So intellectual, yes, but always without pretense, which is probably the best thing I got out of growing up with those parents was that you can operate on an intellectual level, but you can also speak English to people. 
what you're doing is sharing knowledge as opposed to showing it off. Like that's a really important distinction I've come to find over time. Were were your parents sports fans? Oh yeah. My dad more so than my mom, but my mom also. Like, yeah, that's a sports is a defining characteristic of, of the Jones household, I would say. They were interested in, in a variety of things. Yeah, they were interested in a variety of things. And I also think like it gets interesting because my father in particular, my mother like somewhat also, but my father in particular, shall we say, has some fairly militant class politics. Okay. And so um, the idea of joining, we will call it um, the elite, is never something that was particularly alluring okay. to us, right? So I think that becomes a big part of it. But I think Another thing that's kind of like larger and like a kind of macro sociological phenomenon, which is like an interesting window or glimpse into blackness is every now and then you'll catch black people who can be around enough bourgeois black people that everybody's bourgeois. But the truth is, they they just ain't that many of black people in general, of a bourgeois black people in particular, <laughs> for you to really court yourself off. And that's the world you're going to live in. And so. As black person, what you're going to have to do is learn how to navigate and deal with a bunch of people in different places. And one thing I was like real fortunate with my parents, like having them as the exposure and understanding is people want to be around knowledge, right? Like they want to be around the person who knows things, no matter what it is, the person who knows things is generally pretty popular, right? Like that is something that people want. What they don't want is for you to talk to them like they're stupid. That's the part that they don't like. And so when you figure out that rather than your place as educated person or whatever it is, is not to show people that you're educated, but your place is actually to share what it is that you know, because you recognize that a lot of what you know is things that people themselves could easily understand, but maybe have not been in a position where somebody told them what it was. You know, so once you can become the person who can do that, then, oh, okay, cool. But that requires you to stay grounded in a certain way. Like I think that generally Southerners, we know this a little better than most people because we have to interact with more of each other than other people do. Right. And you learn, you better learn how to talk to people about this in a way to make them feel good about it. Otherwise you're going to feel bad about it. I think that's very, very true. Look, we all wear masks all the time, depending on who we're with. Do you feel like you spent your childhood wearing masks with different people, depending on who it was and, and, and who you were with? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because I've always said that if I ever got to be self-absorbed enough to write a memoir, right, <laughs> it would be um, kind of centered around the idea that, like, I'm not really from here, no matter where the here happens to be. So, like, I grew up in Houston, like, that's the thing I always say, but, like, the sensibilities that I have and, like, from the house and everything else, probably, like, more of an Atlanta sensibility. Like, I wasn't in lockstep with the place that I was in. We lived in, like, suburban northwest Houston, but I went to school 20 miles farther out from that, which was just a completely different life experience for those people. So I wasn't really in line with what, you know, with what they were on. So I figured out somewhat early that I could put on a mask if I wanted to, but I'd be putting on a different one every time. Like there was like very rarely, if ever, was there a room that I got in and I was like, oh, yes, you know, this is the place that I was supposed to be. Not so much. Now, the one thing that I do, I I guess I could definitely say as related to like the mask idea that was probably true was that in this society, like I was just reading this book not too long ago about uh, Frank Sinatra and it made the point that 
Sinatra started off as somebody who had more female fans than male fans, and then by the end had male, more male fans than female fans. And the, the argument that they were making is that after he had this fall in the late 50s and then got back up, that that's what got men to come around. It's like the ability to push through the struggle is the thing that people respect. But when you grow up in a fairly comfortable upper middle class environment, you really don't have a lot of struggle to report. Like nobody, really, <laughs> nobody really thinks it's really cool. Like I always say when people say you ought to write a book, like, oh, yes, child of privilege did everything he was supposed to do. That's a page turner, right? Anybody trying to hear that? So I do remember that I like I probably in some ways made my life harder on myself than others because I had like the luxury of parents that if I needed a little money, I could call them and get it or whatever. The people I grew up around or the friends that I had didn't have that luxury. Right. right. And so I do remember I got to graduate school and I was struggling. And I was talking to a guy I was in school with and he did not have the luxury that I had or the reach back. And I just remember him looking at me being like, hey, cuz you better ask those people for some money. I wish I had somebody to call and ask for some money, you know. And so I could probably definitely say if there was a mask, it was not wanting to be honest about some of the parts of my life that were easier not lying in the other direction, right? Like I wasn't pretending like I grew up in a neighborhood that I did. Right. But like nobody like, oh, let me tell you, I sure had it easy. Yeah, people don't like that. <laughs> yeah, no. It's not, not really the story. No, no, that's not no, that doesn't that doesn't help at all. Um you mentioned going back to Atlanta, Clark Atlanta University. You studied economics, then you got a master's in politics, economics, and business from Claremont, and a master's of economics from UNC Chapel Hill and you you started working on a PhD there. What was your what was your goal? I mean obviously these were things that your parents studied, but what was it? I mean one degree okay fine, but you know 3 6 9 degrees later, like what what were you working towards? All right, these are interesting steps in the process. So I'll walk you through this. Okay. So when I got to college, I was majoring in chemistry. I wanted to do pre-med and I wanted to be a pediatrician. Okay. I find children to be delightful. I was doing the science majoring thing and I realized very quickly this wasn't my bag. Like I just didn't enjoy it. Like all this lab and these labs and stuff, I just didn't really want to do it. Right. And so I just kind of bounced around without a major and I took an economics class in part just to get my mama off my back. Because she just believes that the solution to any problem that you might have in your life is a class of two in economics, right? Like, that's just her solution. So I did the economics class, and it was probably more challenging than any class I had taken to that point in undergrad. And so I was like, cool, I'll major in that. And then I decided I didn't want to major in it anymore, but I had something come up in my life where if I was going to change my major, it would take me an extra year to get out of college, which I was all the way here for, just to be Clear. I knew that the real world was not as advertised, right? Right. But a couple of things happened. I was like, no, let me hurry up and get out of school. So I got the economics degree. While I'm finishing my senior year, I started freelance writing and I realized that the media space is probably where I wanted to go. I was just thinking in terms of writing at that point. That's probably where I wanted to go. And so I graduated from college, but the writing thing wasn't really paying no money. And yeah. I remember I, I had taken a trip to D.C. because I was going to have a meeting with a guy who said he was starting a magazine and he was going to feature my work all over it. And I was hearing what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about paying me all the money in the world, but he was talking about paying me living money. And I remember I borrowed some money from my parents to get on the road to go up to D.C. to talk to the dude. And he stood me up. I didn't hear from him. And I remember I had a moment. I was at my buddy's house, at his mama's house. 
and I'm on the couch and my head's tilted back because I'm so stressed and my phone rang and I just picked it up. And it was a woman from Claremont Graduate University telling me that they had this fellowship that was available and if I wanted to apply for it. And this is August, right? This is August of 2001. And I was like, well, okay, cool. I said, I'd do it. And then in some subsequent email, I said to the woman, I'm like, hey, so this is for January, right? She's like, no, this is for the fall. <laughs> like, this is in a couple this is of in weeks. Four days from now. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. And honestly, I wound up doing it for two reasons. One, I didn't have anything else to do. And two, I kind of like convinced myself in my mind that what I could do is if I got this PhD, or not have the PhD at that point. Because I really didn't want to do any more economics. Like I just, I, I really was trying to get away from that. Right. But I'm like, okay, you know, the stuff I'll learn here will probably make me a better writer. And so I did that. And then after a year, I did pretty well. And I took the GRE and I did really well on that. And I was like, oh, okay. So maybe if I got the PhD and I put this along with the other stuff, like I could get into that public intellectual space that was the rage at the time. Okay. And so I did that. And then I get to Carolina for the PhD program, and I realized very quickly that I had a master's degree level of curiosity in this stuff. I did not want to do the things that I was doing. And 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 it's really hard. Like, it's a lot of work, like just elbow grease hours and everything. I don't know. I was in the wrong place, and I'm doing all the writing and everything, but I got myself set up. Um, I had gotten a column writing about music for AOL at the time that was paying me enough to like live. I bought a house, I had a mortgage, I was taking care of it. I was living the life, doing all that. Man, I flunked out of school and the column got canceled. <laughs> like all, all at the same time. And so it was funny because my parents really would like, or would have liked at the very least one of the kids to get a PhD. And I was kind of the last hope. And on paper was probably <laughs> the best hope. And then it didn't work out. Um, but yeah, so I wound up getting each one of those degrees for entirely different reasons. But they all really proved to be very helpful in the end. Yeah. So you 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 talk there about about writing and and developing a passion for that. Now, I know that when you started, you were writing about music and, and culture primarily. Is that, is that what was, was initially the most interesting for you or what you wanted to focus on? Well, I think it was the most, at least in my mind, the most available. Like I read a book that Chuck D wrote, um, and he talked about the need for strengthening kind of the quality of the music press. And that inspired me and made me kind of want to go in that direction. But I was writing about what it was that I could write about. You know, yeah. like I could get an album and write a review with that or I could talk about something that had come up. I could see what was going on in the world and I could respond to that. Like, you know, those are the things that I could do. Like getting to sports was completely different for me, at least in my mind, because I knew enough about sports writing to know that there was a way that you got in the door and I did not have access to that door. You know, like I was not a beat writer. I had not gone, you know, worked at the student paper. I hadn't done any of those things. Like if you were to ask me at that time, how do you get a job sports writing? I wouldn't like what I would have thought. I probably wouldn't have known. I couldn't have given you an answer to that. But I got lucky that when I was really getting into it in the mid aughts, shall we say, it's kind of when the Internet was really booming in terms of written content and the way that people were writing about sports was expanding beyond just the things you needed to have by getting in the arena and like, you know, being a beat writer and like. I would have never known how to get that job or how to go about that. But there's other stuff I knew how to do. And so I kind of went in through the back door of doing that. That's very, very interesting. You know, I think about this often now that there is, I don't know what you'd even call it, traditional 
press or traditional sports press. I mean, these Associated Press feeds about a game that just occurred, they are the exact same that they were in 1973. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you set the scene. This is where it took place. Here are the stats. Here are a few. And yeah, like, I'm not going to give Bill Simmons all the credit in the world, but the places like Grantland that start around this time where you you start reading writers who are talking, I mean, to the point we were just making, more political or historical or putting a game or a person in, in context to something larger than itself, which is obviously, I'm sure to you and to me as a consumer as well, so much more interesting. Yeah, and I think, you know, to be fair to the previous generation of writer, the internet, a big part of what made the internet a place where you could do more of these more expansive things was literally just space, right? Like the idea that space is infinite on the internet, right? You can scroll up and down forever. That That's newspaper, right. we got this block on this page that we got to fit and we need words in these places and then we're going to make it happen. But I really feel like the mid aughts, because I think it's turning back in the other direction now, but that was probably the best era of sports writing that we've had. And the reason that I say that is it was an explosion of so many different things. So we had the trained, dyed-in-the-wool journalists, right, who are still just incredibly important to have. But also you had, like, it was a lot of these, like the lawyers started getting into the game. The professors started getting into it. You just had a lot of people who, also people who were, like, well-known professional writers who just decided they wanted to dabble in sports a little bit more. Like I worked at ESPN.com's page too. And like fucking Hunter Thompson is writing columns. For right. Them, right. Right. Like, yeah, right. Right. Hunter right. Thompson, right. not a sports writer, but does it really matter? Right. You know, like I, you're, you know, writing that page, show him on a page with Hunter Thompson, Ralph Wiley, Bill Simmons was the one who rose, but I'm there at the same time. And he plays a big role in people like me recognizing that there might be other ways that you could go about getting in and talking about sports. And I think that people are going to look back on a lot of the stuff that was being done in that time and like maybe the 10 years after that. And it brought the world into sports coverage in a way that I don't think had really existed previously. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen nicotine pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zen won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zin. Find your Zin online or in a store near you at zincom slash find. That's ZYN.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This 
is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Once you started writing about sports, both for page two and others, does that fairly quickly become your focus as opposed to music, culture, you know, entertainment, other things like is sports it for you where you see your place? Um, not, no. Okay. Overall, I would say no. Um, part of why sports became the focus was quite honestly, that other stuff just didn't pay a living wage. Like I still dabble in a lot of ways in doing some of the other stuff. Like now I'm at the point where if I want to write something about music, it's because I want to do it. Like I'm, right. I, I basically do that for free if I decide right. that that's the space that I want to go in. Um, I do a lot more podcasting now. And so I'm at the point now of people knowing me and I guess of being visible for lack of a better term that I got leeway where I can talk about these other things. Like case in point, when uh, COVID hit in 2020, sports podcasts in particular, the numbers just all nosedive. We ain't had no games to talk about. Like, why Why would we do this? The numbers for my podcast actually went through the roof because people understood that without sports, we still had other things to talk about. You know, so I figured out how to judiciously kind of bring those things into those other spaces. I did. I do a few little CNN hits here and there talk about the politics and stuff if I feel like it because sometimes I just don't like that ain't really the most fun stuff to get into like I went up there one night to do the CNN stuff it was like 10 o'clock and I think it was like somebody shot up one of them places I can't remember which one I feel like Tennessee but it was one of the places that it got shot up and I was like man this is sad like we just all in here is late at night I'm not even getting paid and this is sad yeah and the wheel keeps turning on and on just the other day I mean the same the same story over and over it 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 does become like beating your head against the wall right some of the some of those uh, uh politics or i don't even know politics current events stories yeah like it's i think the thing i've learned over time especially the internet has helped me learn this and a lot of times the hard way like i ain't got to talk about everything Right. Like I can nope. stop and figure out what it is that I do and do not want to discuss, which makes I think a lot of it a lot more enriching and then a lot more fun. But yeah, no, current events, especially now that like sports coverage has ruined every other kind of coverage. And I mean that in the sense that like Jeff Zucker used to always talk about this with CNN, that he kind of wanted CNN to be like ESPN. And I'm like, oh, buddy, what you do over there is actually important. <laughs> like, we come up with contrived argument stuff over here because it's kind of like a big old barbershop. We're not supposed to do this with the actual news, you know? Right. And you just get all stuff, man. Everybody, just kind of going hard at everybody back and forth. And it's just like, hey, you know, I don't want to talk about these things anymore. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I think in a way, though, what he said has happened. It's just there are just different barbershops that talk about things in the same way. And unfortunately, too often, we don't talk about them together or directly together. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where I get kind of lucky with a lot of my work, because I don't know if you know this, but among certain groups of people, I'm a bit of a polarizing figure. <laughs> but um, while there are those that find me at one end of that pole, there's a lot of people in the middle who kind of, and this is where sports, in a way, I don't want to say it's like a Trojan horse necessarily, but I got enough credibility in one space that I can get people to listen to me about some of the other spaces and they can hear things that they really might not hear otherwise. And I don't even mean that like in some sort of dogmatic way or like I'm trying to beat people over the head with it necessarily, but just a, huh, I hadn't thought about it like that. Right. And that's a privilege that's afforded to me, honestly. And I'm very fortunate and lucky in that regard. Cause you know, sometimes you got to put the medicine in the applesauce. I can do that with them knowing that the medicine might be there. And they're still like, oh, okay, cool. Well, if he says that, I might want to give it some, you know, maybe this applesauce ain't so bad. Do you think that uh, around this time you're writing for page two, you start appearing on television shows like Outside the Lines, Around the Horn, to name a few. First off, did you initially like being on camera? I mean, you wanted to be a writer, but now suddenly you're on camera. Oh, so the camera thing is really interesting in that I don't mind being on camera, okay. but I don't love being on camera. Like I've taken long stretches of time off from being on TV and all of that. And I don't ever feel like, man, I really miss everybody looking at my face. Like you ever seen that movie? I think it's called Soap Dish. It's like Sally Field, yes. Goldberg, right? You know, about the woman... And she would stage these moments in the mall where somebody would be like, oh, my gosh, is this such and such yeah. from the sun also sets, right? You know, and just go about it because she needed that drug, yes. that attention and that rush. And I hate that part, right? Like, yes. I enjoy it. I think it's because for me, I came around a lot of this stuff in my, like, mid-30s. I was a foreign person. I, I was good with who I was. So, like, being on camera, there's a level of, like, looseness with it that i have to learn at different points in part i admit because i'm afraid people are gonna be like boy he sure loves being on camera a little bit too much <laughs> like you know like that's not that's not the natural part of me i like being on the microphone though like i really there's something that hits me if i'm doing a podcast or doing a radio show and i'm talking like i like that and it's not because of the attention as much as i really just enjoy the act of putting those ideas together and figuring out how to present it largely extemporaneously but like i really I, I dig doing that part tv boy it's interesting though it's a drug like you watch how people respond to that drug and it it can it can get people like i've realized pretty quickly off the tv like hey you kind of got to dabble in this you gotta you know you need to be able you can't you can't just slam this you'd be messed up for the rest of your life <laughs> you know it always and i don't i don't know him obviously uh being in southern california for a long time uh and maybe you won't even want to respond you know, Plachke always, uh, he comes across to me as someone who really loves being on TV. He really yeah. loves being on TV. That is an interesting thing that I don't know if I had fully thought about, like, how much he loves it. I love that guy, by the way, just to be I, And I'm not speaking like, any disrespect. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm oh, no, no, I don't saying, think you are. When I watch him, I'm like, oh, he loves being on TV. Yeah. 
Well, the thing is, the reason I say that, though, is I like Bill Plasky so much as a person that I reflexively, no matter who I'm talking to, if you say Bill Plasky, I go, man, I love that guy. <laughs> like, that's just that's, it's one of the more unexpected developments of my life is how much I like him, like as a person. But like Woody Page, that guy loves being on camera. Yeah, like, that one's that one's fair to say. I do think. I think Bill is probably one as most of the guys on around the horn were because they were all we got to remember they were all newspaper guys. And this is before we were putting all those guys on camera. I think a lot of them had to get comfortable with the idea that they are now people on camera because they also had a value system that had them thinking that, like, there's room for judgment in this. Right. Like they had always looked down on the TV people. Right. That's very, very interesting. I never I never I, I don't know why I, that never occurred to me before. But also, there's an anonymity to these columnists writing for newspapers and dispensing their opinions and or judgments on players or coaches or front office people that, of course, those people know who they are because they're beat writers or they're around the stadiums or whatever. But as a, as a reader, you're not fully you don't have a relationship with that person like when you're seeing them on tv and that show did really adjust that which is literally because now i now when i read bill plashke i'm i am taking what i can see about him and his personality and the little comment that i just made that he likes being on tv that there are certain things that now when i read his work has changed the way that I read his work because I see him. Yeah. You know, and it, it, what's interesting to me about that is I always say about my time on Around the Horn is that I was maybe the first regular Around the Horn panelist who, for lack of a better term, grew up watching Around the Horn. Like it started coming on okay. when I was in graduate school. So I became familiar with those people as the people they were on television. And so over the course of, I guess we'll call it a decade, I got to know the people on TV. Like I had to divorce myself from what I may have thought, not necessarily bad, but just preconceived notions I had of these people based on television and then actually get to know them as people and be like, oh, wow, I had this completely wrong about insert person here. Like, right, right, did right. I think from watching on television that Tim Callishaw is the dude that goes to Radiohead shows with his son? Never would have guessed. <laughs> right. That's who he is. Right. That's interesting. Do you think that for you, because this is now you start, you're on television, like it or not, do you feel like that gives you more power in the other things that you're doing? Yes, it does. A couple things. One, boy, people sure do call you back a lot faster <laughs> um, as the dude on television. But number two, and this is a big thing. Being on ESPN regularly, like I had a stretch of seven years that I was on ESPN at least five times a week. Like sometimes it'd be more because I do this one show and then go do another on the same day. Like men in this country know who I am. Like English speaking men in this country are very, very, very familiar with me. And so when I started doing stuff like I did the HBO show with some of the things I'm trying to get you know, going after having done that. There's rooms where people know who I am. At the very least, they know my name. That isn't the case if I do this really in any other space or any other medium, right? right? Like I can get calls. I can get meetings. I have 
been able to make legitimate friendships with like people I grew up idolizing because I'm the guy on TV now. I'm the guy on e- you know, as the guy on ESPN. And that's something that I realized very quickly. People still really care a lot about the fact that you were on television. Even in this day and time, they're like, oh, the kids don't really care about this. They just care about streaming. Let one of these streaming people wind up with a TV show and they're going to act like it's different. Like it's it's a, a powerful currency in this society. Yeah. You eventually began co-hosting Highly Questionable, of course, with Dan Levitard. Talk to me about that gig because here's the thing that it seems to me by a lot of the work for you from the outside that comes after it game theory on hbo being forefront you know love him like him am ambivalent toward him dan has uh found a way to really focus on a cross-section of sports and fun i guess entertainment that it feels like influenced you moving forward true or false it's interesting because I I think for a lot of people, if your familiarity with me comes from seeing me on TV and not having like heard my radio stuff or read the stuff I'd written before, you might get a narrow view of kind of how I do it. Now, keep in mind, I'm the dude that showed up on Around the Horn and the second time that he won, broke out a championship belt. Like I'm, I, I'm, I'm here for the good time right. in, in its own way. But what Highly Questionable had that, no other show has ever had or probably ever will have is Dan mocking the whole concept of sports television by saying, I can put my father up here and we can still make a show out of it. Right. right. I can have him say what is off. It's, it's what he thinks, but it's often the same thing your local columnist is saying, but it's my dad that's doing the thing where I was helpful to Dan though, in that regard is Dan doesn't get that. People do want to take this sports stuff seriously. And so you can dismiss that idea all that you want. You still got to give them some of the serious stuff because that That's really right. is why they're here. They just don't need it to be as serious as it is in some of the other places. But yeah, Dan, working with Dan was very helpful in having a reminder that you don't have to make this seem more serious than it is. Like if this part of it is a joke, then you can kind of ride out with the idea that this part of it is a joke. Right. Yeah. Like for him, for him. He's a large child, so he kind of wants everything to be like it's not work. Like, I'm the person that's there to remind him there are stakes. This is real. We have to be grownups from time to time. Right. But at the same time, there are, there is some value from having this large, sweaty child near you. Well, what I have always admired about your work is, yes, the fun, but really the thoughtfulness that you put into your takes for lack of a better word or for you helping to contextualize a moment that is happening or a series that is happening that may pass that may be larger than one game or one series um you were able to have fun with it but also take it seriously i do want to ask you about the hot take for me is in a lot of ways destroying the experience of sports journalism. And I feel like you have largely avoided feeling like you need to do that to get attention. Talk to me a little bit, if you would, about 
about your feelings about this. And of course, I'm talking most famously about Undisputed with Skip Bayless and and First Take with Mr. Smith. All right. So I will say for me personally, I have recognized for the better part of my life that when I start talking, people listen. So I never felt like I needed to say something contrived in order to like hold people's attention or anything like that. Now, with the industry of television, I agree with you that what most people would term the hot take is a problem, right? And I think there are a lot of people who feel like they need to have this thing to say, and that's what's going to make people jump out and get it. Now, I don't mind your hot take. Like my good friend Nick Wright, for example, what he is brilliant at is it's it's a different form of what I call like the Bill Burr model. Well, Bill Burr is so good at starting off with some crazy premise that makes you uncomfortable. He's like, no, 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 let me explain. And then you start explaining and you're like, oh, that's not nearly as crazy as I thought it was going to be at the beginning. I thought we were all going to get fired. I thought I was going to get fired just for having a ticket to this shit, right? Right. Um, my right. buddy Nick is very similar to that where he says crazy thing, but he always has like a real defense that comes behind it. Where I get worried about the hot take stuff for me, and this is really a conclusion I've come to more recently than anything else is, that is us making the story about ourselves, right? It is us making it about our ability to win some kind of argument and go back and forth. And what I think gets lost in the grand scheme of that is how much, like, the people that we cover are incredible. Like, the people that we cover are better at their jobs than 99.9% of us are at our jobs. And we don't spend nearly enough time just talking about how much we enjoy watching these people do these incredible things that we, by and large, have ourselves tried to, like, reproduce a reasonable facsimile of like we don't we don't do enough of that now like with those two shows skip bayless is that person and Stephen a is the person that you see there like neither of them are particularly contrived i watch first take a lot more than i watch undisputed and i will actually say i think that Stephen a is more thoughtful and measured than he gets credit for but also he is understanding of the fact that he is expected to drive, for lack of a better term, the entertainment of that show. And we'll dial it up and we'll get to these places and it'll seem kind of loud and everything else. But rarely, the only times I see Stephen A talk about something on TV and I feel like I don't know if he knows what he's talking about is because that man works so many hours in a given day, in a given week, that now they threw something out there because they need it for business. And he's trying to carry that sort of thing, too. Skip Bayless believes that he was put on this earth to argue about sports. Like he believes that this is a God given path. I have read him saying this. So he goes about this and sees it in a much, much, much different way. But there was a point, I guess it was about 10 years ago. Like that was when Richard Sherman went on and hit him with, I'm better at life than you. And Jalen Rose hit Skip with the thing about being on junior varsity. It had gotten so ramped up and it had gotten so hyped up that it has defined that whole genre of television in a way that I honestly think it is largely moved away from. They have people have the back and forth, but you don't have nearly as many of like the shouting matches and stuff that you would see people having on television back then. You don't you don't have nearly as many of those. But I also think that this current time that we're in post Kaepernick, where we had all the stuff come up in Kaepernick and people, you know, the whole stick to sports thing, you need to stick to sports, you need to stick to sports. But I don't think people realize how far that went. Like, I think it was one thing when you were just saying that to get people to not talk about the police. But now when you look at it, so much of this stuff that sports is really just just sticking ball. That's it. And that's not like, I don't think that's really that interesting either. And I think to your point, 
that takes away from the ability to talk about things in more nuanced ways, because how much nuance can you have just talking about the sports? Right. I think nuance is great. I think I think having an opinion is great, and particularly from people like you who watch and experience and are hearing things going on behind the scenes and and contextualizing it within, at times, as you just mentioned, larger socio-political things, I think are incredibly interesting. But Brock Purdy is Jesus. Like what, like what, like what, what, like what, like what is this? Like what, why are, why are we, you know, and then an all out fight ensuing about whether or not Brock Purdy is Jesus. uh, I'm talking about before the season is absurd to me. But the funniest thing, like Purdy, Purdy creates what I think is a great example to look at because there's this divide of football fans that doesn't get discussed enough, which is about how much college football you actually watch. Because if you were a college football watcher, you had opinions on what the Brock Purdy show was. I mean, he's a two-time all-conference quarterback, and it was a roller coaster ride. Right. And so he gets to the NFL, and I look up, and all these people are talking about him like he's just a game manager guy that just makes all the throws. And we're like, baby, you got no idea what's up. <laughs> And the last three weeks have been, oh, that's the guy we saw at Iowa State. But the NFL people had no idea. So all they had to lean on was every trope and cliche that they ever had. It's like, oh, he's not that big. He's a white dude. He's got to be smart. Otherwise, how could the seventh round pick still be getting this? And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You're ready. You're ready. He's going to do a lot of dumb stuff. <laughs> You're going to see. He's going to do some stuff that blows your mind, too. But, oh, dumb stuff is on the way. Yeah. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen nicotine pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen nicotine pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
Of all of, let's call it major sports, what do you consider yourself to be? Well, what's your favorite? And what do you feel like is you are the most knowledgeable at or in? Okay. I would say if you were to ask me like knowledgeable on the history of, it would probably be college football because college football is just so fascinating with little to do with the actual football itself, just the crazy people who are around it and the crazy things that they do. I mean, after yes. all, I looked you up on the wiki. You went to college at a place that when you got there, didn't have a football team because <laughs> yeah. they because because crazy people were doing crazy things. That's right. right? You know, so like on that level there, basketball, probably just because it's a game, I think it's easier to understand. I got probably more participatory knowledge of doing that. But like college football, and it's really a wild thing because I've had this problem the entirety of my career because people think that college football is kind of like the exclusive purview of white men. Right. Like I could I, I never could get people. I'd be like, yeah, I'm really into college football. But like, really, I didn't I, I didn't think that. Like what, 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 what is the reason that you didn't think that if I, I mean, if I said baseball, they would have had less of a surprise, but I enjoy talking about college football more than anything else. Cause you just wind up with these wild stories. Of like, yeah, this guy tried to get that guy fired so he could stay there. Cause if he stayed there uh, one more year, he would have 10 years in the state system and then he could get a pension. Oh, okay. I'm in. Well, what should, and what is, going to happen to Jim Harbaugh. So this is a situation where, and I think the longer we all live, the more we realize the number one thing that gets you fired is when your boss wants to fire you. That's all it comes down to. Does your <laughs> boss want to fire you? Cause they don't have to fire him for what's going on with the sign stealing and all of that. They don't have to. But Ohio State also didn't have to fire Jim Tressel over those tattoos. They wanted to because they thought they could get Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer ain't walking through the door for Michigan, right? So I think that he'll probably get some other suspension. The NCAA will try to wallop him just to try to prove some sort of point. Because, look, now that the kids can get paid, they don't really got nothing to do. They, they got to be bored as hell now that they can't just stop the kids from getting paid. So they're going to have to come down on somebody like Harbaugh and make it happen. And it's just, Wow. This is the nonsensical nature of college football. We're here because some dude was stealing signs. That's the controversy that we got. But just a couple months ago, they said at Northwestern, the boys were slapping each other with their meat, and we didn't have no time to really delve into that. I don't really understand what we're doing out here these days in sports coverage. Is it because it's Michigan and Jim? I think that's a big part of it is his personality that rubs people. I am fascinated by him because – I find him to be so sincere. And I think in this, where it gets interesting is people feel like he's lying to them at various points. And I'm like, no, 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 he believes what he's saying. It may not be true. I don't know what mental gymnastics he has used to work himself around, right? But Jim is, he is what he is. Like, I learned to really like Harbaugh when he first came out, when Kaepernick did his thing, and he was like, I don't stand by what he's doing or the message, and then went back and was like, okay, I overreacted, and then wrote something for Time Magazine about how he had overreacted and how he started doing work with people about trying to make sure that folks have proper legal representation when they have to go into the system and everything else. And I don't agree with him on this, but he is a pretty staunch anti-abortion guy, and he had given some talk where he talked about how he just doesn't think that people should have abortions, which... I mean, as just that right there, I don't think it's a nonsensical premise until you add all the real world factors into it. Like I can see how somebody would get there. 
And somebody said something to him about, well, who's going to take care of these unwanted kids? And he was like, well, if you don't want them, bring them to my house. And I'm telling you right now, he meant that. If you showed up at his house and put a baby in a basket and said, you said, leave this kid here. He is crazy enough that I think that he might take that kid in there and be like, (laughs) all right, well, 18 more years. This is what we're going to do. Right. But he's so intense and he runs so many people the wrong way. And he's one of the few personalities left in college football that anybody has a passionate opinion about. Yeah. You know, see, to me, as we've been talking uh, about the variety of things that we're talking about, about it's it's sticks and balls, but it's uh, politics, there's culture, there's race, there's I mean, to me, this story, the part of this story that's so fascinating, which I haven't heard anybody write about because I'm not a writer. Um, the NCAA moves like a slug holding on to a turtle. So there's no way anything's going to happen there. So really, as I understand it, the only way they can get punished is by the big 10, which has a financial interest <laughs> no incentive to do this. <laughs> in not punishing, even if they don't like him and he rubs them the wrong way, they need Michigan to get into the college football playoff and get that big payday for their conference. Yes. Yes. And so they're not going to yes. punish him. And it's just, to me, that that's what's fascinating about, about sports. Yeah. Well, also, the 80s and early 90s were a different time with the NCAA, where they were willing to do the thing that really hurt, which was take you off of television. Right. right? You know, I joke with you about the SMU thing, but that whole Southwest Conference, they went through and got everybody just about at every point. Even the big boys, they were pulling them off television. Alabama got to the brink of the death penalty at one point. Yep. They were willing to do that. And then they realized, man, all that's doing is costing people money. <laughs> we ain't doing that no more. What are you crazy? You know, right. and so they decided they were going to stop doing that. And so you're absolutely right. Is there any real incentive for there to be any real, like, mechanized punishment against Michigan? Probably not. But at the same time, you're not going to get me all bored with, well, you really got to shut them down for this sign stealing thing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Having a hard time getting me to care, boys. Right. You've managed to be a strong voice for racial justice in this field that, as we've talked about, often wants to just put their head down and focus on the sticks and balls. Do you think that your voice has been welcomed by and large, or do you feel like it has been not appreciated? I think it has been appreciated by honestly if it's appreciated by one person then i've probably done some good right but i actually think it's been appreciated by a lot of people and i think Me too. that i talked to ta-nehisi coates about this once and he made the point that i said a little earlier is just like you getting people who somebody like him could never reach because they're not coming to the atlantic or wherever the places are that he might be like i'm able to come to where people are and I think that people who thought they would not appreciate it at first ultimately did come to appreciate it because I think they came to respect the way that I choose to go about this. My brother made a point to me when I first started writing that has been a guiding light in my career, which was a good argument is not one that a genius cannot refute. It is one that a fool cannot refute. And so I'll give an example. This is when I was working in North Carolina. And it was one of those Confederate flag stories that come up. Like I think South Carolina was doing their Confederate flag thing and the ACC was supposed to have some event there. And, you yep. know, it was all, 
then I'll go to Final Four. I'll never forget. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I did. Yeah, it's NCAA tournament. You're right. And I remember I did some event or some some show in South Carolina where a guy who'd always been very nice to me on Twitter asked me to come on. He had three names, like he's that kind of country. Like I want to say it's like Alan Wayne or something like that. (laughs) And he had me come on. And then next thing I know, he's like the ACC, or as I call them, the ACCPC. And he just started rolling and said, and the NAACP said this, Bomani, why did the NAACP do that? And I go, you talking to me? He says, yeah. I was like, my bad. I don't work for them. I don't know. Right. I was like, oh, oh, what's going on here? (laughs) And so I came on my show and I know how people feel about that flag. And honestly, I grew up in Texas and like had a next door neighbor who had a stars and bars bumper sticker but was always very nice to me whenever we talked in the driveway like i didn't it doesn't hit it didn't hit me viscerally in the ways that it hits a lot of other people but anyway i was like i want to talk about this because i'm not buying the arguments that people are getting back from me and i never felt more accomplished in my career than this moment so i get on the mic and i say hey i understand that a lot of you are making this argument that the Confederate flag for you is an emblem of Southern pride. And that's really all you're trying to say. You're not jumping off of slavery. You're not supporting any of that. You're just supporting your Southern identity. And I said, that's cool. I get that. And I'm like, I, as a very proud Southerner, feel the exact same way that you do. So I just want you to tell me, why don't you come up with something for Southern pride that we can all get with? Like, you know why I can't get with that. So why don't you come up with something that we can all get with? And I went to the commercial break. You know, people love to call the show, right? And I went in and people love to call me happy. They love to call me mad. They love to call me any way they wanted to. And we went to the commercial break and I said, all right, cool. Well, anybody want to give us a call? Let us know. Just like, why can't you come up with something that we could all share? And I looked over at that phone for those four or five minutes of that commercial break and it did not ring one time. I had stumped them. I had completely left them flummoxed and left them in a place where they had to say to themselves, damn, he's got a point, right? Those people who did not call probably didn't think that they would appreciate me. I bet you in that moment, a lot of them did. And so that's what I, you know, a lot of people get mad and a lot of people say the angry things and they make say all kinds of things about me that I think are like accusatory and inaccurate. But I think that there are a lot of people that are quieter than folks realize who would say that they have appreciated some of the perspective that I've offered on these things, because I'm not I don't intend to badger every individual about it because I know it's a lot bigger than them. But you can listen. And I think that if you deal with people the right way, you can get them to do so. That's awesome. I have to mention uh, your father, who was you mentioned it briefly before he was one of the Southern University 16. Uh, arrested and then banned from public colleges in Louisiana for organizing anti-segregation sit-ins. Do you think, well, did he talk about his activism with you? And do you think that that has shaped you today? So what's interesting when you mentioned that is my mother's actually a little bit more gangster than him when it comes to that. (laughs) My mother, when she was 15 years old, was the face of the sit-in movement in Oklahoma City. And wow. it's these I want to say the second like second sit in movement in America. The first one was in Wichita. This is the second. one. So if you ever hear in the, in the Kanye West songs where he talks about his mom being arrested at the age of six at the sit ins, these are the sit ins that we're talking about. And so I bet my dad 
was ready to brag to my mama when they met in graduate school about his revolutionary bona fides. And she was right there to tell him, no, nah, actually, I spoke at the National NAACP convention in 1960. Um, and so what is interesting about that, though, is generally, yes. But specifically, no, I've learned probably more about my parents on that front as an adult mm. than I knew and really understood growing up at any point. Like I knew my mother was involved in these sit-ins. I knew my father had been put out of school behind those. But I think I had to truly get older to like really appreciate and grasp the magnitude of what both what they had done. But I also think for them that it was important. They are not at all self-aggrandizing people. And I think that it's honestly a humility that comes from it. Like, like my, we, when we left that, we moved out of the house in Houston in 97. I remember we were going through some drawer and we came across, you know, one of those cardboard cylinders and it was like, Oh, I wonder what's in there. And we look at it and it's my dad's PhD, you know, like, like, (laughs) you know, like, like we're going about it a little bit differently here, but no, it was, my dad made a point about his father that makes me understand him in a way. And he's, and he said himself, he's mellowed over years, but like what he learned from his father was if there was something to be done, you did it. Consequences be damned. And that's how he winds up getting kicked out of school. He doesn't exactly view it that same way, but what I got from them more than anything else is a real picture of people who done the real work. So now when you see everybody who thinks they some kind of goddamn activist on Twitter, just cause they said something that made somebody mad. No, I've seen the real thing. Right. Like you think you think you about this revolution. You think you about changing the world. No, 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 no. I've met people who got stories that will blow your mind in that regard. I mean, people that have had to take they fight to the Supreme Court and shootouts with the federal government. I've 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 met a different caliber of person when it comes to this. And that's, if nothing else, the perspective of understanding what it takes to really get it done has been really helpful. I started podcasting a few years ago it seems like a long time for me now four ish five years ago you've been doing it basically since the beginning uh your first podcast the evening jones going strong since 2011 what do you like about it you know it's so funny because i started doing the evening jones because i worked for a company where i was doing a radio show out of my house through an isdn line and okay. every now and then they were then every now and then they would forget to pay the bill <laughs> and so it would take like three four days to get it up but my people wanted content so i started doing this just to make sure that the people had content and what i liked about that one because that one is like it's a it's a live webcast, right? Like I take questions from people. I really like the intimacy and the back and forth of it. Right. What I liked about podcasts from the very beginning though, was the portability of it. Like when I first started doing radio, I was trying to push the people like, Hey, how do I get this out as a podcast? Cause I knew that would be the best promotion. Like I, rather than being beholden to whether or not somebody was in the radio, you know, in the car, listen to the radio at a specific point in time, like, let me get this to them in little bites and they could go get it. And then as time went on, what I like about doing a podcast now after having done many different forms of television is it's an opt-in product. Like, yes, I need to be conscientious in terms of my topicality and not go too far off the beaten path and what I'm talking about, but I'm dealing with people who decided to come here. I have more leeway. I have more flexibility. I can go in more directions. So if on my sports podcast, my buddy Joel Anderson at Slate just got through doing uh, four podcast series on Clarence Thomas, then we can talk about that series for 45 minutes because the people who are here trust me enough that they know, okay, this isn't sports, but it must be worth something if Bomani's willing to talk about it for 45 minutes. Yeah, that's right. It's that. You know, it's that. It's I know that if you're here, you're here for me. 
to forget about life for a while. You know, like I, absolutely, I'm, just, I'm very aware of what this is. Uh, your podcast, The Right Time, just relaunched after eight years at the proverbial mothership ESPN. You're now back on Wave. Are you excited to be? You do this three, three days a week. You do video. You do. You do it all. Are you are you excited to be back now? Yeah, I was excited to be back if for no other reason than like not working for three months <laughs> makes you realize how much work you do. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, like, I enjoy the hour of doing it. You know, like sometimes there's other things that are hassles and everything else. But I like when I know it's me in this audience that's talking. I enjoy getting on and doing that. And so I was glad to get back. I'd worked with ESPN in various capacities for the better part of the last 20 years. So I'm not a person that leaves there and has all these terrible things to say about the place. No, I changed my life in a lot of ways. But I think for a podcast, this is going to be a much better chance for success to get more eyeballs on it. And at a place that I think for the medium itself is more concerned. So, no, I'm, I am. I'm glad to be back. Um, do you, you think you're going to have more freedom? And I, I'm not asking you to talk crap about oh, ESPN. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I get but, you. I, in theory, yes. But, okay. A, when don't nobody really pay attention to what you're doing in the first place, you got more freedom than you realize. <laughs> like, there's no more freedom than doing a Saturday morning radio or Saturday night radio show. Yo, boss ain't listening. Ain't nobody calling. Like, there's no more right. freedom than that. Um, But I have learned over time, and I've always been able to figure out how to say exactly what I wanted to say within any constraint that somebody has. And so I probably have the freedom to say something stupid in a way that I didn't have before. And I prefer not to flex that, you know, but I've, I truly feel Good like, yeah, I do. I mean, I truly feel like I learned how to do this stuff in such a way that now that I'm here, I'm kind of like, was I really losing anything? Like, oh, I can curse more. I probably should have been like thing you learn while doing HBO show. It, it actually turns you into a prude, right? Because everybody is like, ooh, HBO, let me write fuck. And they put it in as many times. You're like, guys, we don't need to curse that much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Ra rapid fire. I don't know. I'm just inventing this in the moment. <laughs> uh, college football team you root for? I used to root for the University of Texas. And then I had to stop because of that Eyes of Texas thing where black people are like, hey, we find this song very offensive. We're like, oh, black boys are going to sing that song, damn it. <laughs> um, so I, I, I have backed out on them. I wish that Miami could get good again so I could go back to rooting for Miami. That was come on. Rooting for you're Miami from, was a great time. You're from Atlanta. Come on. I know. Man. I know. I know. The Georgia. The Georgia thing is interesting. I do think they have the best looking uniforms. That is that is where I will always go. My problem with Georgia right now is they're so good, but it's no fun. They're just super good, right? Like let's like let's. I just need them to be a little more fun. That's all I need. It's just give me a little more fun because they are a destroying machine. That they is sure what are. They are. And I also, sure by are. the way, want to find that clause in the laws of the state of Georgia that say. The University of Georgia is not allowed to run a single pass play without at least one white person throwing and or catching. I don't think they've called a play in the history of that school without one of those things being the case. You had to think about uh, it, didn't you? You had to think about it. Well, no, but there was the DJ Shockley year. There was the DJ Shockley year. There was, yes. And also, uh, uh, and because he became a traitor because he decided to leave because he didn't like being under <laughs> oh, Fields. Fields. 
Yeah, Fields, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, but he was gonna be throwing the lad or Brock or one of those. Like at least the lads and Brocks are good now. He used to always yeah. be the one where they'd be like, "Oh, that's Matthew Stafford's roommate." <laughs> you know, always throw it out there like that. <laughs> I recently saw your take. I, I find him so fascinating, Wemby. I mean, is it the most exciting yes. rookie since yes. Shaq? That's more? the closest example that I can get to. It's more exciting for me than LeBron was. And Shaq, I think, is a good example because Shaq had done three years of college. So there was reason to think that, like, oh, he's going to jump. Like, that's back when rookies of that caliber could jump in and be NBA players. And Shaq was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. But not like this. I've never seen anything. Like, I didn't know. I Like, you didn't think a human like Shaq was likely, but it seemed possible in its own way right like you've seen right. really big guys you've seen really tall guys it could be both right. at once right i couldn't right. believe like all the things i see this guy do i just can't believe like i say he looked like it's a grand opening right like the plastic things where the wind gets him except he can really 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 play basketball and he's an ordinary some bitch too like he's flexing at people and talking shit i'm like they teach all that in france okay <laughs> Well, French, the French people can be nasty. We know they this. Can. Come on, they money. They can. I didn't know they were doing it in basketball, though. You know no, what I mean? No, I, I, no, I know. The, the whole idea of like, oh, seeing somebody in person, seeing somebody in person. I want to see him in person. Yeah, it's so a difference. Bad. Like, it's I, a difference. I want to, I want to sit down there near the court, and I want to, I want to watch him. I, operate. I, let me tell you something. I went to summer league in Vegas this year for that specific okay. reason. I wanted to be there for the game. And the internet had all the jokes about his first game. We did not have jokes in the building. We could not believe what it was that we were saying. You're watching a seven foot five dude out here dribbling like Kyrie Irving. Like it just, it, it, it was, it was stunning and shocking to see. And no, it is a difference seeing something like this in person. Television just takes something away. Like football is the biggest one. Where if you ever go watch a football game from the sideline, honestly, it's kind of like if you've ever been in a car and your car broke down on the side of the interstate, you really don't know how far as fast them cars are going until they're right. running past you. <laughs> Right. right. Same thing. No, I want to see this with my own eyes. Yeah. It's incredible. Good luck on the relaunch of the right time. I absolutely will be watching. Congratulations on your continued success all across the podcast panel. I find you uh I find you refreshing because of your depth and intelligence to listen to you always so thank, thank you, you so man. much for coming on here and thank you for for giving well for giving southerners a, a good name david a good, a good I, name. I appreciate you having me on man we'll have to do this again absolutely i appreciate it good luck the rest of the way oh wait who are the best two teams in the afc the best two teams in the afc are the chiefs and shockingly the jacksonville jaguars interesting are the Jets going to make a playoff run? Well, I hope they do. I'm actually enjoying that. It's making me, it's, it's a fun little run. They're, they're a little engine that could, and you never get to be that in New York. They are a little engine that could. I went through five years of some really terrible football on over-the-air television here. I am just glad to have interesting teams. Yeah. All right. Uh, I can't wait to see your takes as we uh, continue along. Best of luck to you. I appreciate you, Matt. All right. Thanks. Bomani, 
Thank you so much, buddy. It was great getting to know you today. I love what you said about podcasting being an opt-in medium. It is so true, and I am going to continue to opt in to your show and your very astute analysis. Everybody, you too should opt in to the right time to hear more from Bomani. And thank you all for opting in to hear me today. I hope you'll come back next time. Until then, feel good and have a great week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Ali Amir Sahim. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Brett. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.